Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What are we starting? Are we I think, started. I think, we, think, think we've started. Let me look at you. Let me look at that face. Is that a cardigan you're wearing? It is. I'm, it's, it was at the bottom of my drawer. I like it. It's giving like a log cabin feel to the episode. Yes, yes. I, I've sort of come back round to it. Oh, I love a cardigan. Should, shall I give you the brand? Please do. I'm guessing St. Michael. Well, you're guessing wrong, actually. Ah. Vintage CNA? It's Oliver Spencer. Oh, fancy ad. It was bought about... Seven years ago. Do you have any problem with moths in that house of yours? Uh, yes, but it's sort of it's kind of low down my list of problems. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> it's behind climate change actually. <laughs> Bane of my life. In fact, actually, probably climate change is affecting the moths. Yes, I bet it means that the moths are around for longer every year. No, it probably is eliminate. Sadly, it's probably eliminating a lot of the moths. Actually, how so? Well, I think just because of the impacts on biodiversity of the climate crisis. We'd be interested to know if anyone on the podcast, because we're going to get to something on dinosaurs, aren't we? Yes. Uh, has any data on moths? I'd have thought that climate change is meaning that clothes moths are around for longer, but then other types of moths are going to be adversely affected. Sorry, why? Because clothes moths eat fibres that we have in our homes and that's not being affected by biodiversity, whereas moths who are out in the wild. I, I sort of think your, I think your sort of cod science is kind of cod. Well, but people, people haven't got fewer jumpers than they had. Oh, for goodness sake! <laughs> what? No, because the moths, the moths sort of arise. The moths don't just breed in your house, do they? They must get into your house. Yes, but I think they primarily. The outside. Yes, but I think they primarily eat those those fibers. These brown moths. But I've less, got no, of, I've less, got no problem less with of them are being. Pro- less of them are being bred. Surely, I mean, being there's bred. less of a supply. <laughs> like you say, being bred like there's a moth crofts every year. Moth. moth breeders. <laughs> Look, I'm standing up for the moths. You're 
I'm team moth. Okay. I'm I'm generally pro moth apart from clothes moths, who I would happily see raised from the face of the earth. Oh, well, that's pretty controversial. I think, you know, yeah. my, my track record on... Oh, track record. <laughs> Hark at you. Now, listen, let's, should we get on to slightly weightier matters? Yes, so it's our last chattery before Christmas. Well, we had a sort of argument about that, didn't we? But We're going to give you a little Christmas present on Christmas Day. So you will yes. wake up and there'll be something from us in your stocking. But um, this this is the last one prior to Christmas. And I was going to talk about COP28. Yeah, you have, you have, well, I was going to say you have tidings of t- good tidings of great joy from COP28. Is that overstating it? Yes. I mean, look, all of these things are very double-edged, but I do think it is significant. And, you know, in a way, just thinking about... So, so just to tell people what the COP said, I think people will know... Uh, Sorry, just let me just find the actual wording. I've got it here if that's helpful. Oh, God. Yeah. So you're going to read out the wording, Jeff. Yes. Uh, you're tra- our COP correspondent. Transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So the, the, the bit introduction in paragraph 28 is further recognises the need for deep, rapid, and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in line with 1.5 degree centigrade pathways and calls on parties to contribute to the following global efforts in a nationally determined manner, taking into account the Paris Agreement and their different national circumstances, pathways and approaches. Now, and then D, I, and it goes tripling renewable energy capacity, accelerating, eff, accelerating efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal, uh, coal power, accelerating efforts globally towards net zero emission energy systems, utilising zero and low carbon fuels well before by or around or, or by around mid-century and then transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems as you said and then a number of other matters now this is a much stronger text than uh the previous version um which had been greeted very badly um it's also quite significant paragraph 28 because it talks about 1.5 degrees and do you remember that um, Paris is sometimes interpreted as saying we should uh, keep global warming to 1.5 degrees, but it actually talks about two degrees, below two degrees, and efforts towards 1.5. Okay. And so having in paragraph 28 now, – now it's fair to say that in paragraph 26 it talks about two and 1.5 – um, but then 27 and 28 are about 1.5. So, And there has been this tension in the global community and, you know, some countries have been worried about sort of 1.5 becoming the sort of interpretation of Paris. So I think it is sort of quite significant, actually, that twenty that, that paragraph 28 talks about so, so 1.5 becomes a benchmark clearer. It's clearer there that 1.5 is a benchmark for the global community. And then obviously the big thing is having fossil fuels in the agreement for the first time. Now, it's slightly remarkable that we've taken 28 cops to get fossil fuels into the agreement. But, you know, I met Sultan Al-Jabbar, who is the, who is the president of the COP, must have been a something like a year ago in london and look and i one of the things i said to him was look you know you are a fossil fuel 
big fossil fuel producer, you're going to have to confront fossil fuels in this agreement because lots of people will, for quite understandable reasons, be wondering why you're the head of the oil, oil company, you know, what what does this mean for the COP process? Is a fossil fuel nation the right nation to be hosting this? And, you know, to be fair, it is, you know, it is the first time in 28 COPs that we've had fossil fuels um, in the agreement. And, so, and, you know, the Saudis and others beforehand were, the indications were that they were very unhappy about it. So it sounds like that meeting he had with you in London really got him no, thinking I'm, about some things. Then I'm not. I'm not saying it's about the meeting with me. I'm just no. And uh, I know you're not. But so uh, so it's not. I guess if you're listening to this podcast or if you're us, it's it's not the agreement you would have written. No, but, I know we'd have but, cut, but, but but just yeah. that these oil producing nations are using that language is it f- feels very significant to me. Uh, do, do you know the phrase Nixon in China? No. So the phrase Nixon in China was the Nixon. Richard Nixon did this big outreach to China and the phrase Nixon in China is often used to in politics to say uh, it takes somebody it takes a certain type of someone someone comes from a certain type of political spectrum part of the political spectrum to do certain things so Richard Nixon who was obviously a Republican president from the right was almost more able to reach out to China than a Democrat would have been, because a Democrat would have been greeted with howls of protest that they were actually a communist and all of that. Right. And so there is a Nixon in China aspect to this, I've always thought, which is, okay, at one level, having a fossil fuel country being the in charge of the COP has its massive risks. But if it's going to happen, you know, maybe they've got more of an opportunity to drive other fossil fuel nations to a better agreement than a non-fossil fuel country would would do. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so that's what that, So I did, I mean, the, I didn't obviously decide who was hosting the COP, but, you know, once it happened, um, I, I did think, well, th- th- this is the... This is what it's got to be. It's got, there's got to be a Nixon and China element to this. Now... Just one thing to read to you because I was just looking at some of the reaction to this. We had a we had someone on called uh, I think it was at COP twenty six called Mohammed Adal or maybe COP twenty seven Mohammed Adal, director of Power Shift Africa. Yes, um, and this is what he said about the agreement. For the first time in three decades of climate negotiations, the words fossil fuels have even ever. Have, have ever made it into a cop outcome we're finally naming the elephant in the room the genie is never going back into the bottle and future cops will only turn the screws even more on dirty energy although we're sending a strong signal with one hand there's still too many loopholes on unproven and expensive technologies like carbon capture and storage to keep dirty energy on life support uh the transition may be fast the tech calls for transition away from fossil fuels in this critical decade but the transition is not funded or fair we're still missing enough finance to help developing countries decarbonize um, and then some people may have had their expectations for this meeting raised too high, but this result would have been unheard of two years ago, especially at a COP meeting in a petro state. It sh- shows that even oil and gas producers can see we're heading for a fossil-free world. Now, you know, Mohammed Adao is nobody's sort of patsy, so it's interesting that that is his reaction. Mm. Um I mean, just while we're on the good side of the ledger, because I'm going to come to the bad, the, the pro- more problematic or the more questionable side of the ledger, 
more under the radar, I'm going to go back to my old friend Gigatons. Do you remember the Gigatons? Oh, yeah, the UNEP emissions report. Exactly, UNEP emissions gap report, which I know you've been reading, actually, at bedtime. Uh, I've been sewing you been sewing. You've been reading it to... You've been reading it to Jean, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I've also—I don't want to ruin the surprise—but I've been sewing a te- sewing it into a tapestry for your uh, I mean, for your Christmas re- present. I mean, that is really so. You, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm touched. Anyway, look, the emissions gap report says there's a gap of about 22 to 25 gigatons of emissions that need to be got rid of by 2030 to be on track for a 1.5 degree pathway, which is an incredibly difficult task. Now. Adair Turner, Lord Turner, who was the chair of the Independent Climate Change Committee in the UK and now runs something called the Energy Transitions Commission, has produced some assessments of some of the other things agreed at COP. Um, Trebling renewables, energy efficiency, some other changes in relation to oil and gas, carbon capture, uh, action on heavy emitting system sectors, deforestation and the like. Now, he estimates that 9 to 17 gigatons of the gap has been uh, closed compared to the 22 to 25 gap. Now, I think they sort of conclude it's probably closer to 9 than to 17. But, again, that's another piece of sort of good news. I mean, the the world is moving. Now, the, the more sort of questionable issue, I think, now, or the bigger question is... What happens in the next two years? So the next COP is going to be in Baku in Azerbaijan, and then the uh, COP 30, 2025, is going to be in Brazil. And in Brazil is when the world is supposed to update its nationally determined contributions, so its targets, Mm -hmm. each country in the world, for 2030 and for 2035. And that will be the proof of the pudding, really, as to how close we are to closing the gap and whether the sort of warm words on fossil fuels. I mean, you know, the big question is, are the warm words on fossil fuels carried out into actions or do do people think, well, we can just carry on as we were? You see, as I I couldn't find this, but I think OPEC's reaction, the oil producers, was to say, well, we're quite happy with the outcome. Now, if they're quite happy with the outcome and they think it means business as usual, that's not so, that's obviously bad. So, you know, the question is, does this thing mark the world get, getting real about issues to do with fossil fuels and indeed 1.5? Or is it a sort of nice agreement? Can I ask when the countries update yeah. on how they're doing with the targets? Is it televised? Well, yeah, it's like the Eurovision Song Contest. But, but also, that, d- d- does everyone know those numbers already, or is it a, is it a big reveal? Or does well, it- you're supposed to do you're supposed to do it. I think six or nine months before the COP. So really, re- sort of re- in theory, you should be doing it in the spring of 2025. So it's not like people go along to the COP and say, "Tada!" Uh, but, but. Sometimes countries will say something in advance and then, you know, like slightly lowball what they might, you know, they might leave leave themselves room for manoeuvre. I mean, look, all of this, I think, says that for the people who say these cops are a complete waste of time, why are these people flying around the world? I just genuinely don't think that is correct. I don't think we would have seen, you know, it's what we said last week. There is something interesting, which is nobody wants to be the villain of the piece here. Mm, the peer pressure. 
the the peer pressure is important um uh and so that is that is significant and i think i sent you a piece from the new york times um uh which sort of slight in a slightly maybe excessive way said this might be what broke the deadlock at cop 28 and it's by peter coy who's an opinion writer and it's about the fact that sultan al jabbar convened what is uh, called a, a majlis at the um, COP, which is basically, I think he sort of took people out of the kind of very in-the-weeds negotiations um, to sort of just say what they thought, as I understand. That, is that your understanding of what it... Yeah, it was a really interesting piece. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. It's something that goes back... I think hundreds, if not more than a thousand, yeah. um, a couple of thousand years, in fact, in in, in the Middle East, and it's a, a very, I guess, convivial way of debating and discussing a situation ahead of a decision. And it says the majlis on Sunday, which involved delegates sitting in concentric rings, no head of the table, didn't seem for diff- first glance too different from other gatherings. Climate diplomats from France, Australia, and the UK, among others strongly advocated phasing out fossil fuels, while those from Saudi Arabia and Iraq just as strongly opposed doing so. It wasn't kumbaya, but al Jabbar may have been right. There was more speaking from the heart than usual. Uh, the gathering seemed to evoke a more personal, emotional tone and confidences were shared. I mean, it, who knows whether this... It's, it's interesting, though, isn't it? As somebody who's been in negotiations, is this an, a, an approach, a more sort of conciliatory approach that, you've seen yield results in the past because often people go in don't they and there's a combative element to it you know i think people people are reluctant to show their hand this feels a bit more open and conversational which i'm I'm drawn to you know there's this there's this phrase in i think legal negotiations which is a without prejudice conversation in other words you can't sort of use the conversation back it's uh-huh, like a, yeah. you know, it's like when they're trying to settle a court case. I think they have a without prejudice, so they can't then say an open court. Ah, you said to me privately, um, and so maybe there's an element of it that was sort of was that, and it's sort of understanding. I think there's something about the negotiations that it can become very well, not just acrimonious, but sort of kind of absolutely in the weeds. Yes. And maybe this was a way of getting out of the weeds a bit and saying, look, here, I, I used to say when I was in charge of this, you know, each country has its own compelling constraints and we can dislike the compelling constraints, an oil producing nation that's, you know, lots of its national income comes from this, um, other nations with other compelling constraints. And we can say, well, the compelling constraints of each individual country shouldn't um, overwhelm uh the global need and that must be right the global objectives but i think there is i think there is something interesting about it and inter- sort of interestingly enough and i don't think it's too much of a stretch it takes me on to talking a bit about pete betts he, he, and i think i talked to in a couple of weeks ago about my dear friend pete betts who was a lead climate negotiator um and who's sadly died of a brain tumor uh, recently and um I was incredibly struck and, and you know, I confess, you know, funerals are incredibly sort of obviously emotional and extraordinary occasions. But, you know, 
this occasion was particularly extraordinary. And and uh, a friend of Pete's and a friend of mine, Seppi Golzari Munro, gave this tribute to Pete. And it's it, the funeral was two or three weeks ago. And but this her tribute is in my it's been in my head ever since. Yeah. And, I, uh, and I asked her to send it to me, and I actually have asked her permission to be able to talk about it on the podcast and i just want to read you the beginning of the um her her eulogy because it is it was it was just quite remarkable and and this is what it said how many people do you meet in life who are truly interested in seeing you the whole of you not for their sake and not just for your sake but also for the sake of it for the sheer goodness of knowing for the sheer goodness of knowing you where are you from what do you value how do you see the world I'd say it's a pretty rare quality, but in Pete, this rare quality was to be found in abundance. And rarer still, this genuine interest in seeing and knowing was not just reserved for friends or colleagues, but for each singular soul with whom he came into contact. And and, and she goes on, who knows, maybe at first you were surprised or even uncomfortable because many of us are not used to people wanting to look so far beneath the surface. But Pete wasn't about comfort, he was about connection. And whilst it can sometimes feel uncomfortable to allow yourself to be seen or even tr- truly see another, it is surely the only route to true connection. And then she goes on, and this is what's particularly relevant for this discussion we've been having. There is no doubt that's what made him such a skillful negotiator as well as a genuine friend. But he wanted to see and know the human being on the other side of the table for all their edges and flaws, as well as their polish and shine, in in short, for their humanity. Um. Anyway, I mean, it's incredibly moving tribute. And um, it, I tell you, so, I mean, the thing it made me think about was my relationships with people at work and the extent to which I, I just never thought this about Pete. I mean, I think once I, once Seppi said this, uh-huh. I sort of then realised that it was a, probably a correct description of Pete. But it sort of made me think about my relationships with, pe- with people and the extent to which... You know, it's it's sort it sort of reminds me of community organising. Do you remember Citizens UK? Yes, that course yeah, yeah. I went on, which is all about they have this phrase, which is something like relationships precede action, and relationships with people that precede action. So there's a sort of personal aspect to this, but I also can't help feeling you know, lots of people said what a great negotiator Pete was, but I think Seppi really put her finger on it, mm. and then this Majlis thing made me think. Well, without getting too happy clappy about it. I think there is something, you know, there is something there about if you want to make deals with people, if you want to cajole people, of course there are big geopolitical forces there. And so, you know, if you're just thinking, oh, well, if I'm just nice to, you know, a country like Saudi Arabia, they'll do whatever, you know, I I want them to do. Well, that's obviously rubbish. But, but you know, because every country has their own interests. But I think there is something quite, interesting and important about the about how you negotiate in this yes when you say you think about it in terms of your relationship yeah. with people you work with what, what do you mean by that what what is it sort of given you moments you, to reflect on you, so so in the citizens uk thing every meeting is started with what they call a rounds where yes. you say how are you feeling today what would you like to get out of this meeting and it makes me think that so much of what we do is so transactional mm including at work and 
And there's something about the transactional nature of things where you don't really get to properly understand people. And I think politics is quite bad at this. Yes. Because it's so high pressure and so uh, sort of frenetic. Yeah. You know, can you really get to know the real person? And I actually don't think it's the way human interactions tend to work in professional life, maybe even sometimes in personal life. And it's also, dare I say it, you know, I don't want to make a national characteristic point, but but maybe there isn't a culture in Britain of doing this either. Uh-huh. Because you it, think? I'm, I'm listening to it, and it's such a wonderful tribute to, yeah. to a man, and, and, and look what a way yeah. for a life to be described. And for all my yammering on about how I don't like being around people, I'm socially awkward, all I ever want is that connection. What I don't understand is how to get to it. I, I don't want to do the small talk. I feel so awkward in the small talk and, and, and the fumbling around trying to get to that connection, I find so difficult. You see, you see Seppi, says, Seppi says in her, in, her, in her eulogy, the first day I met Pete, he guessed from my name that I was Iranian and proceeded to make conversation with me in Persian. Wow. Uh, it was as lovely as it was surprising. Not long after that, he'd learned all about my family, my circumstances that had brought me to the UK and much more besides. I bet he knew many distinctive things about each of you too. I mean... It's hard because it's not really the way that you see. You see, the way they do it in community organising is they have these things called one to ones, mm. which is where you sit down with a person and talk about self in, their self interest. I'm trying to understand their self interest. There's something it's, about somebody who the, the, the speed at which you can connect, though. If 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 you're able to fast track that process if your personality is such that you're able to kind of get into what's at the heart of somebody and what is alive in them without that awkward dance of of small talk and conversations that never get wind in their sails that's a real gift if if i could have one gift i think that's that's what i wish it would be but maybe the other thing about it is revelation is what's essential self-revelation is what's essential to provoke revelation in others isn't it? Because I don't think you can get other people to say more about themselves without saying something about yourself. Yes, and I, I'm never very comfortable, only because I think people will think it's boring or narcissistic if I start talking about myself too much, I guess. Have I told you the story about this guy called Arnie Graff, who was a big community organiser and worked for the Industrial Areas Foundation, which was the, the, the organisation that trained um, Barack Obama? I think it was John Crudus, or maybe it was Morris Glassman, who got them to come and got him to come and see me when I was leader. And basically this guy walks in, he's in his sixties, I think at that point. And, uh, he's like an American guy and he starts like talking to me and, and everybody else leaves the room and he starts saying, Oh, how do you feel? etc. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what the hell is this? And, and, you know, I'm in the middle of a sort of mad day of some kind but then it's like it was magic. You know, by the by sort of 40 minutes in, I was sort of able to say something about how I felt. He was able to talk about himself. It's a technique, it's a technique. I mean, I don't mean technique in a in a sort of bad sense. I mean, it's sort of it's a way of being and a way of interacting with people. I mean, it's just so hard. Yeah. Just, I think it's also because you've got to break down the barriers in other people well do you remember when we tried to do a rounds thing on the podcast and i was incredibly uncomfortable i don't remember we we did uh, one of the episodes we did we sort of did an experiment where we um sat and talked about our values and why we believe what we believe and and i 
Yeah, that that's all I ever want, really, from a connection. Yeah. But getting there is so hard for me. I'm yeah. too I'm I'm just too in my own head about what other people are thinking of me. But what if okay, what what if that issue was resolved? Would you find it I mean, it's quite per- – it isn't very British. I, I, sorry, I know I've said that once yeah. already, but it, it doesn't feel like a very traditionally British – it feels like more an American approach. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. Who are much more willing to sort of talk about themselves. I wonder if we think of that as an American approach just because of the language barrier. So I wonder if that would be, for example, true of somebody from Brazil or the Philippines. Or Well, that well, no, no, exactly. I'm sure you're yeah. right. I mean, I'm sure you're right. It's just like that American thing, you know, hi, Jeff, how are you today? <laughs> I mean, look, it's this thing of connection, isn't it? Yeah. I, I also think you can you can sort of understand people so much better if you don't operate on a just a sort of superficial level. Look, it's just incredibly hard. It's just incredibly hard. And it's uh, it's obviously very strange because somebody else who spoke um, at the reception afterwards for Pete had something similar to say about their personality and how he understood that and he was a com- very accommodating to that um and that they were more introverted and he was sort of he accommodated that and so it's sort of it's like a sort of as you say it's like a magic power mm. but it's not really surfaced properly mm. like a, a lot of people are able to talk to strangers it often happens on trains especially if you sat next to Ed as it, Ed, as it happens. But I, th- I think far fewer people, only a tiny percentage of people, have, have that ability to kind of break through and connect. And I wonder what, wonder I what think it's that for was of, in him. But I think it's for want of trying, isn't it, in a lot of cases? Most people don't ever try. So how do you transition from complaining about the fact that there are no cheese sandwiches in the buffet car to something deeper in the space of a you see in a way it's quite easy for me because i get recognized as rishi sunak so people are keen to talk <laughs> to me uh uh but but you know so i can have a people who when people approach me in a train or whatever i can then have a conversation with them i ask them about themselves they probably know quite a lot about me maybe it's one maybe it's slightly one-sided um but i definitely think I always like to ask people about their parents, their upbringing, to know more about them. But I think if I'm honest, I have professional colleagues I don't know that much about, you know, and I haven't asked those questions, really. But then what and would, it's what partly would the context? It's partly an intrusive thing. I think it's partly a sort of intrusion thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that that could be where this cultural factor comes into play then. You see, Pete, on day one, was talking to Seppi about you know the fact that she was her her name was iranian where her family had come from and all of that you know and that's what really really stuck with me ever since that um ever since the funeral but but then the other thing about it was the other thing about it is and i i remember saying this when i went to the citizens uk citizens uk training which is is this going to be like your holiday snaps in other words you sort of you know you have this these memories of this thing and then you show them to other people and people are like, yeah, okay, I don't want to see your holidays. Now. <laughs> it's like, you've gone through this process, but other, but the rest of the world hasn't. 
Yes, yeah. There's also something about the the way you're describing that and Pete, which feels very different to you know when people go on I don't know like neuro linguistic programming courses to find out how to connect to people, but it always feels to me that stuff like they're trying to figure out how to play people and get what they want out of them. Yeah. This this feels different to that. It doesn't feel transactional at all. Yeah, I think it's because I, I think, think it's definitely true of negotiations. I think. I, I, I think Kathy Ashton, who we, I think we had on the podcast talking about her role as the European foreign policy chief. Yes, she was amazing. I, I think this was a big part of what she was talking about, which is that these relate, if you're in diplomacy, these relationships really, really matter. Um, you know, a, a journalist who shall remain nameless once, a BBC journalist, talked to me ages ago about what he called the large impact of small slights. So in other words, in politics, if you're sort of rude to somebody, it can be quite a small thing, but it will come back to sort of, you know, bite you in some form. Now, this is this is this is sort of deeper than that. But I think it is the sort of flip side of it is well, it's like it's like the community organizing citizens UK. One of them said to me ages ago that they had once ages before gone to a Labour Party meeting uh, at the suggestion of a Labour MP, not not me, and and organised the constituency to do a sort of citizens-style engagement with each other. And that there were people who'd sort of, you know, had furious rows about unilateral disarmament or whatever the issue was, I think this was the 1980s or 1990s, who then but who knew nothing about each other. They might be in the same meeting for 25 years, but knew nothing about each other, really. Yeah. And who then found a way to connect to each other. So, so some people might say, well, it's, you know, it's not relevant to the objectives that you're, 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 you're trying to achieve. But it is because just connection and empathy makes everything easier. Yeah. And I look, I definitely don't want to reduce this to, if only we had more connection and empathy, we'd me 1.5 degrees because that is obviously nonsense is obviously wrong i just think it i think i take it primarily as a as a instinct about one's own personal relationships as a sort of for one's own personal working life how you make it more pleasant more understanding etc um but i think there probably are broader implications 
sorry, the IKEA man was just trying to ring me a bit five times. Worry. Hi, Hello. the IKEA man is outside. Oh, great. Bye. Okay, bye. Do you love hearing the abrupt way that married couples speak to each other? No, it's, it's the same as, it's the same as me. <laughs> Your tone changes completely, doesn't it? Now, one more order of business. Uh, we received an email from Matt Sutton, and this was remember last week we got talking uh, a little bit about dinosaurs. And perhaps on a flight of fancy, you were saying that you, you'd always had aspirations to yeah. be a paleontologist. I mean, this is a corker of an email, isn't it? It really is. In fact, this is like our, this is this is like our best chatteroo email. <laughs> it is. Do, do, do you want to take it? I know you like reading no. it out loud. No, no. We well, could do we could do a paragraph each. Okay, okay. Um, so Matt starts by saying, "Hi, Jeff and Ed. I am a paleontologist at the University of Oxford, and I feel I'm in a good position to unify the fields of paleontology and climate change that you discussed in the latest chatteroo. I actually listened to the latest pod whilst extracting 100,000 year old fish teeth from the North Atlantic seafloor mud. I mean, I mean that is just a that is just a amazing opening paragraph yeah I, I, I mean, we've had people listen to this podcast in some far-flung and yeah, exotic locations honestly, but I, I think fishy. short of getting somebody uh to email in from the international space station i agree i just don't think that can be beaten can it i mean what's remarkable is that he was on the north atlantic seafloor while listening to our podcast uh <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's wearing a swim p3 player. exactly that's what i wonder Pale- <laughs> next paragraph paleontology is a discipline is increasingly being used to better understand what the earth will look like in the future due to anthropogenic climate change the projections of future climate that inform policy decisions domestically and at cop e.g ipcc climate models are all fed by paleontological and paleoclimate data generated by scientists investigating the ancient earth he says my own work is aiming to set a baseline for how marine ecosystems change during periods of rapid warming using microscopic fish and plankton fossils from the past million years. I think it would be uh, it'd be completely legitimate for you to get Matt in for a meeting and then you can just ask him loads of dinosaur and fossil questions. Def- definitely. On dinosaurs, Ed asked what killed them and why ocean animals were affected, and Jeff correctly identified a meteorite impact as a leading hypothesis. Enormous volcanic eruptions were also happening in what is now India just before the impact event 66 million years ago. And the combination of these two caused catastrophic changes to the atmosphere and climate system, which ultimately drove 75% of all animal species extinct. So it's entirely accurate to say that climate change wiped out the non avian dinosaurs says i hope this helps add to your discussion and gives ed some reassurance that he's well positioned to begin his career as a paleontologist i'm doing an environmental policy placement in the Senate next year which i which is the welsh parliament yeah which i never would have even considered if not for the political optimism inspired by your podcast perhaps me and ed could seamlessly switch places in a few years time and then he, all the best, Matt, and he adds, P.S., and this was a, I thought this was a sort of rip snorter of an ending. There are actually more dinosaurs alive today than there ever were before the meteorite impact 66 million years ago. Most of them nowadays sing the dawn chorus and eat worms in your garden. That's a real so, mic drop at the end there, isn't I mean, it? That's total mic drop. Yeah, because birds words, are dinosaurs. Birds. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. 
I'm saying yes confidently, and be, because Matt has written it to us in an email, and he is a paleontologist. I've heard I knew I knew um, birds were descended from dinosaurs. I didn't know that they were sort of technically classified. I mean, you dinosaurs. are definitely higher up the class than I am on dinosaur studies. I think you get a sort of you, you get a kind of B. And I'm quite in the sort of C minus D category, I think. I think that's because all kids, when they're about four or five, go through yeah. this enormous dinosaur phase. Yeah, maybe that's And true. I'm closer to that than. Okay, well, that's very. That, that's incredibly magnanimous of you. I'm an incredibly magnanimous man, especially Character. at this time of year. That's something I'm learning about you. Yeah. <laughs> After six years, it's just starting to surface. Um, well, I should let you, let you go. Uh, of course, you got your birthday this week. Are you having a party? No. Just family, close friends. I'm not really a party, but it's not a big one. No. It's not a big one. Oh, can I tell you a funny story just to end with? Please do. So I had an excellent visit um, to the local ho- uh, hospital in uh, Mexborough in my constituency on Friday, and um, uh, I was looking around some a new unit. They've got an endoscopy suite, a suite which is you know colonoscopies and other things. Oh, I'm familiar. Yeah, you're familiar, and. Uh, we were talking about i was talking with the nurse the chief nurse who i think basically leads the unit um about sort of screening for these illnesses and she said something like well you should have had a um communication because it's for everyone over 56 <laughs> oh no no she's aging you i'm so sorry <laughs> I loved it. I it was just like you know. It, it, look, I'm, I, it's just like great material. And I said, "Well, actually, I'm under fifty six And she was incredibly embarrassed. So then I did a little speech cutting the ribbon, and I said, "You know, well, you know, even though I'm under fifty six <laughs> Anyway, so my, even my next birthday, which is approaching on Christmas Eve, uh, I shall be. Under, Under 56. 56. But not very, by much. Well, I wish you all the best for your very much not 56th birthday. And I wish you all the best too. And I shall see you on Christmas Day. I mean, I shall see you podcast-wise on Christmas Day. When you when you were more infatuated with me than you are now, you did turn up at my house once on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> you did remember? Yes, I do remember. And we should answer mean- the door, but I didn't know you were there. I am as infatuated as you with you as I ever was. I shall be in Nottingham with my parents-in-law. I see. I think maybe this is why you've got issues in sort of building relationships with people. <laughs> I'm trying to get to the heart of things. We'd better go before we sort of this all goes sort of. All right. Okay. Pear-shaped. See you for Christmas, Chatteroo.